Welcome to History Books and Wine, where three author friends talk about books and fun historical tidbits, all while raising a glass of vino. We're your hosts, Lori and Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin. So, pour a glass and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of History Books and Wine. I'm your host this week, Madeline Martin. I'm a USA Today bestselling author of historical romance with page-turning action, tough heroines, and the men who are strong enough to love them. In this episode, I'm continuing our discussion on witch trials. But first, I need to talk about what I'm drinking tonight. This past weekend, we had our Halloween feast, which is something that we do every single year for Halloween because my family absolutely loves Halloween. So we do all kinds of crazy things like pumpkin vomit guac and mummified jalapeno poppers and jello brains and all of that kind of stuff. We have so much fun doing it. So we bought a lot of wine for the party and we called it blood, of course. And uh, we didn't drink it all, so we do have some left. The Ravage wine was not only buy one, get one free at Publix, which obviously was a huge draw, but it has a really cool night on the front. And so I went on ahead and grabbed a couple of bottles and I have some of those left that I will be drinking tonight. Not all of the bottles, just one and only part of it. When I went to the website, I realized it actually only comes in either a dark red blend or a Cabernet Sauvignon. I didn't realize that. I thought they had all the different kinds of red wine, but I am drinking the red blend tonight. And from the website, it says this fruit forward deep red blend is well balanced with layers of dark cocoa, rich mocha, and vanilla bean notes. The 2016 vintage came in early this year with average crop sizes overall and berries that ripen quickly. Early rains followed by ideal weather conditions brought robust canopies, resulting in excellent fruit quality and superior quality wines. I agree, it's delicious, and I am going to pour some more into my glass and take a nice big sip. Yum. So, going back to it, I am going to be discussing the witch trials of Trier. So, I need to get some backstory before I launch into the, all the gritty details of the Trier witch trials. In the late 15th century, a book called Malleus Maleficarum, or The Hammer of Witches, was published by Heinrich Kramer. And this was meant to be a compendium of demonology, but was actually rejected and condemned by theologians not only for its brutality and torture, but also how far off it veers from Catholic doctrines on demonology. And it was truly brutal in its preachings. It was, first of all, it was terribly misogynistic, and it blamed a woman's weak mind and body for making her susceptible to witchcraft. So generally, it pointed to predominantly women who fell prey to witchcraft, which you'll see that people use their own interpretation of later on, because it's not just women. Additionally, he touted torture as a means of getting witches to confess to their sins, which made them heretics, which meant that they had to be burned at the stake, and of course, he meant for this to be done while they were still alive. The crazy thing is, even though the Catholic Church shook its head at this book, even though it was written in the late 15th century in 1487, the Malleus Maleficarum was used in witch trials for the next several centuries. That's right, it means a few hundred years. Now, I know we live in a modern society where we have access to new knowledge so regularly that news is considered old after five days, if even that. I also know that in the medieval days, books weren't always really super prevalent, but seriously, centuries later and at what point did somebody finally look at this book and go i don't know guys this is from like the 15th century i think this is getting a little stale anyway that was a long digression back to trier 
the Trier witch trials occurred in what is now the area located between Western Germany and Luxembourg. Technically, suspicion of those who participated in devil worship began in 1570 with the Spanish Inquisition, and the blame placed at the feet of the witches for lower-than-usual crop yields, sick cattle, people who got sick in their homes, etc. This planted the seed for a wild crop of insanity. Fast forward 10 years later from the Spanish Inquisition and almost a century after the Malleus Maleficarum was published, when Johann von Schoenberg was elected as Archbishop of Trier in 1581. He was fanatical about the Jesuits, who were a society of Jesus that were centered in Rome. He was so emphatic about the Catholic religion in general that he sought to destroy anyone who deviated from its faith, as he viewed them as nonconformists. Specifically, these included those who were Protestant, who he went after first, the next came those who were Jewish, followed by the people who he believed to be witches. Because who wouldn't rely on a book written almost a century prior as current and relevant information when condemning people who you assume to be guilty of witchcraft? Why not? Regardless, the witch trials, tortures, and executions began in earnest and continued through that course for 12 years. First, he pursued the lands outside of Trier for the initial six-year period before finally tackling Trier itself from 1587 to 1593. In the 12 years that the witch trials went on, over 22 villages were torn through with such ferocity that there are reports of two villagers being left with only one woman remaining in each. But women were not the only victims of this madness as neighbor accused neighbor and client accused merchant and enemies accused one another. Men, women, and even children were accused tried and killed. Additionally, the victims were not strictly limited to the poor. In fact, almost a third of those slain were nobles. Get this, it's really crazy. When somebody was accused of witchcraft and they were put to death, their wealth was confiscated and the accuser was given their fortune. I'm sure that you can imagine the insanity ensuing with all of these people accusing these really rich people just in the effort to get their fortunes. And I'm going to drink some more wine to that. Here's an eyewitness account. Meanwhile, notaries, copyists, and innkeepers grew rich. The executioner rode a blooded horse like a noble of the court and went clad in gold and silver. His wife vied with the noble dames in the richness of her array. The children of those convicted and punished were sent into exile. Their goods were confiscated. Plowmen and vintner failed. Hence came sterility. A drier pestilence and more ruthless invader could hardly have ravaged the territory of Trier more than this inquisition and persecution without bounds. Many were the reasons for doubting that all were really guilty. This persecution lasted for several years, and some of those who presided over the administration of justice gloried in the multitude of the stakes at each of which a human being had been given to the flames. That's just crazy. Nobles, children's, deans, bakers, parish, priests, basically nobody was left safe in this mass execution as it swept through the land. Not everyone, however, took these massive deaths in stride. Dietrich Flade, rector of the university and chief judge of the electoral court, rose against the witch hysteria and was later arrested, tortured, and burned at the stake himself. Unfortunately, his death only served to throw fuel on the fire, no pun intended, as destroying the leader of the opposition made everyone realize that no one was truly safe. After all, it's better to conform than to be the next in line for torture and death. However, there are always those who are brave enough to stand up. Even in light of such a horrific demise, Dietrich was not alone in his protests against the trials. A man named Cornelius Luce, a scholar and professor at the university who was also a Catholic priest, spoke out against the horrors that he witnessed in the witch trials. First, he tried writing a letter to the city officials decrying their methods and questioning the expertise of the witch hunters. Feeling that, he wrote a manuscript denouncing the witch trials. 
files. However, before it could be published, it was discovered and Luce was arrested. He was made publicly to recant what he had written while prostrated on his knees. Pretty much everyone who tried to stand against the witch trials ended up meeting their own demise, or in this case, Luce didn't actually meet his demise. However, he had to publicly recant what he so strongly believed in to the point of penning an entire manuscript for it. There were no rights for victims accused of witchcraft, and almost every single person who was accused of witchcraft was found guilty. This meant 368 people were burned alive, though scholars estimate the total of the number of dead during this 12-year period to actually be closer to 1,000. Another thing to keep in mind, there was no war going on at this time. This was essentially a time of peace, and all of those deaths that occurred were due to witch trials. Not a single one of them was due to battle or war or anything along those lines. So what finally stopped the witch trials, you ask? Well, it certainly wasn't brave people coming forward because we saw what happened to all of them. Nope. Simple economics. When you start losing big chunks of your population, you realize suddenly that there's no one to bake your bread, to couple your shoes, to control the chaos and disorder in the land, etc. As soon as people's positions became empty from witchcraft due to death, and as soon as those gaps began to be felt poignantly, the deaths slowly began to stop. But not for long. I wish I could say that this was the only witch trial to be faced in this area, but it wasn't. Germany had a lot of witch trials going on during this specific time period. In 1603 to 1606 was the Fulda witch trials, which left 250 dead. 1626 to 1631 had Würzburg witch trials that left 157 men, women, and children dead. Most of them were beheaded first before they were burned, but they do estimate that it could have been as high as actually 900 who were dead. Um, at the same time as Würzburg witch trials, there was also witch trials going on in Bamberg. The total accounted for well over a thousand definite registered deaths with many more that were suspected over those bloody decades. Here are some of the details of the victims that were slain during the Würzburg witch trials. This was pulled off of the all-knowing Wikipedia. Many of the executed were not mentioned by name. Below follows some names that were given as an example of the variety of people who were being burned at the stake. Three play actors, four innkeepers, three common councilmen of Würzburg, 14 vicars of the cathedral, the burgmeister's wife, the wife of the mayor, the apothecary's wife and daughter, two chorists of the cathedral, Gobel Bablin, age 19, aka the prettiest girl in town, the wife and two little sons and the daughter of Chancellor Stolzberg, Bonach, the fattest burger merchant in Würzburg, Seinacher, the richest burger merchant in Würzburg. The seventh burning was a wandering boy, 12 years of age, four strange men and women found sleeping in the marketplace. The 13th and 14th burnings included a little maiden aged 9 years, a maiden still less, meaning less than 9, the little girl's sister, their mother, and their aunt, and a pretty young woman of 24. The 18th burning, two boys of 12, a girl of 15. The 19th burning, the young heir of the house of Rotenhan, aged 9, a boy of 10, and a boy of 12 years old. So it's pretty crazy how many people... <laughs> really fell prey to these incredibly awful witch trials that just completely ravaged Germany at that time. You know, it's interesting. I lived in Würzburg for four years, and I'm sure that at some point in time, I probably went 
to some kind of a site about the witch trials, but I was in middle school and so it's kind of stretching my memory a little bit so I don't remember it. So reading through these accounts is pretty crazy to kind of go back through and, and read all of this. I do know that when it comes to witches, typically it wasn't common for witches to be burned alive at the stake. Generally witches were usually either strangled to death or like in the case of Würzburg, they were beheaded before they were burned at the stake. Basically they were dead before they were burned. However, going back to the Melius Maleficarum, they did need them to be burned alive as heretics and so they were probably some pretty grisly deaths. So that is Trier and Würzburg and Bemberg and Fulda with the insane amount of people who were killed in a 12 year period due to witchcraft. So now I'm going to be moving on to what I have been reading. I've been reading Ribbons of Scarlet by our own E. Knight as well as Sophie Pirino, Heather Webb, Kate Quinn, Stephanie Dre, and Laura Kamoy. First of all, I just have to say that I went to their tour that is currently going on right now. They came to Jacksonville Beach and you know that I'm not missing out on an opportunity to go see Eliza. I've never actually been to an author chat before and I didn't know what to expect, but it was so fascinating. They shared so much great information about the French Revolution and it has completely enriched the experience of reading the book. So if you have a chance to go and see them, they are still on tour going through and promoting the book. If you have an opportunity to go and see them, I definitely recommend it because it's a really, really great experience. And also they're all super nice and you get to meet them if you haven't had a chance to already. The cool thing about Ribbons of Scarlet too is that the story follows a seamless path of the perspectives of six different women from different classes and backgrounds through the French Revolution. So each of the six authors wrote a different woman's narrative. So like it'll start with one woman and then she'll move on, you know, something will happen and then it'll move on to somebody that she's met and it'll go on to her perspective and then it'll shift over to somebody's perspective that she had met. And so each of the stories is told in a good solid chunk. It's really fascinating. I've never read a book that does it like this before and listening to it is great because the narrator is different for every character, which just really enriches the experience so much more. Ribbons of Scarlet is a timely story of the power of women to start a revolution to change the world. In late 18th century France, women do not have a place in politics, but as the tide of revolution rises, women in gilded salons to the street of Paris decide otherwise, upending the world order that has long oppressed them. Blue-blooded Sophie de Gauchy believes in democracy, education, and equal rights for women and marries the only man in Paris who agrees. Emboldened to fight the injustice of King Louis XVI, Sophie aims to prove that an educated populace can govern itself, but one of her students, fruit sour Louis Odo, is hungrier for bread and vengeance than learning. When the Bastille falls and Louise leads a woman's march to Versailles, the monarchy is forced to bend, but not without a fight. The king's pious sister, Princess Elizabeth, takes a stand to defend her brother, spirit her family to safety, and restore the old order, even at the risk to her own head. But when fanatics use the newspapers to twist the revolution's ideals into new tyranny, even the woman who toppled the monarchy are threatened by the guillotine. Putting her faith to the pen, brilliant political wife Manon Roland tries to write her way out of France's blood-soaked reign of terror, while the pike-bearing Pauline Lyon and steely Chardet Corday embrace violence as the only way to save the nation. With justice corrupted by revenge, all the women must make impossible choices to survive. Unless unlikely heroine and courtesan's daughter, Emilie de saint amarant can sway the man who controls France's fate, the fearsome Robespierre. 
I highly recommend this book. I confess that I didn't know much about the French Revolution prior to reading this book and have learned so much through each of the refreshing perspectives. It is a total must read slash listen. Now I'm going to talk about the book that I recently released. Yay! This is Layla's Legacy, which is the fifth and final book of my Borderland Ladies series. When I was first writing this book, I knew that Layla was going to be different from her sisters. I wanted her to have like a little bit of an underlying maybe power kind of. And so as a result, I wanted something to happen where she was going to be tried as a witch. So I am going in theme with what we're talking about for the next month. When I started looking at the time period in history, I realized that it actually fell in line with the Black Death. And I've always been very, very fascinated by the bubonic plague. So I did a ton of research on it. It was incredibly fascinating. I tried to put some of my findings in the back and the author's note. I did that with all of my Borderland Ladies books. And as I'm going through, I'm trying to add it on to other books that I've written in the past also. So if you get to the end of one of my books, make sure you check the back to see if there's an author's note with some fun information that I learned while I was doing research on these books. So without further ado, I'm going to talk about what it is. Lady Layla Barrington is the youngest daughter of the Earl of Warwick. While she has always known she is loved, she still carried the guilt of her birth and feels set apart from her sisters, not only in appearance, but also by the visions that haunt her. In a world where fear and superstition rule, her gifts may cost her everything, including her life. But when she has a premonition of the great pestilence, she knows she will not be able to turn her back on the sick and dying, not even after she sees her own death at the hands of the man who she is fated to love. After his father was cursed by a witch and died, Niall Douglas devoted himself to living an honorable life, one of such ferocity and determination that he became known as the Lion. As deputy to the keeper of Lidsdale in the debatable lands, he swore to protect the people. When rumors circulate that a witch is responsible for causing the great illness, nothing will stop Niall from bringing her to justice. However, once he has arrested Lady Layla, he finds her to be an incredible beauty with admirable strength and spirit, a woman who consumes his thoughts and turns his blood to fire. With desolation and death surrounding them, will terror and fallacy tear them apart, or will their passion overcome prejudice and prove that love is enough to save them all? If you have read it, I hope that you enjoy it. If you haven't read it, I hope this entices you to try it. I've really enjoyed writing my whole Borderland Ladies series, and it's kind of sad to see it all come to end. And because I can't really bear to see it end, I'm actually going to be doing another series that will be starting next year called The Borderland Rebels. And that's going to include a character who I've had a lot of readers reach out and ask me for his story, and that's Drake. So it's going to be Drake and his three sisters. So they'll get, the sisters will get their stories, and then Drake's story will be the fourth story. And I'm already planning it in my head, and I'm super excited about it. So the question for today is coming from Carol from Illinois. And Carol wanted to know what our favorite episode of History Books and Wine has been so far. My personal favorite happy hour that we've done so far was the one that we did in person when Lori, Eliza, and I went on our retreat to Cape Fear in North Carolina and we stayed in the little cabin and we were discussing historical hygiene. This was the one that was recorded on May 9th, 2019, so if you want to go back and listen to it. I can't listen to this episode without just cracking up. I mean, we'd had kind of a tough day that day and so we started drinking a little earlier and then we realized that we had to do the podcast and so we were already a little tipsy going into it and it was just hysterical like first of all we were talking about hygiene together drunk and so that was already funny enough as it was and then with us just being loopy and funny um it was just hilarious so sometimes when I'm really missing Lori and Eliza I'll go back and I'll listen to that and it just makes me smile and I feel like they're right there in the room with me so if you want to feel like you were in the room with us at that same time too 
to feel free to go back to May 9th, 2019 and listen to Lorianne Bailey, Eliza Knight, and Madeline Martin share their knowledge of historical hygiene from their annual retreat on Cape Fear River. It is definitely fun. (laughs) I think so. My question for you this week is wanting to know what your favorite episode is or even just something interesting that you learned on our show. So you can go on ahead and reach out to us at historybooksandwine at gmail.com to let us know what your favorite show or favorite educational experience has been so far after listening to History Books and Wine. And feel free to drop us a question that we'll answer on the show as well. Also, feel free to please check out our website at historybooksandwine at buzzsprout.com to hear all of our podcasts, read through our show notes, and see the links to our books that we've been talking about. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, and Alexa. We're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Oh, and also, I will be going to the Epcot Food and Wine Festival this weekend, so if you would like to follow my culinary and wine-slash-lush experience while I am in Epcot, feel free to check out our Instagram account because I will be sharing pictures there as well. After all, foodie and wine people have to share that kind of stuff, right? If you've enjoyed our show, please do feel free to leave a review. We do read them and we so appreciate them. The next episode will be posted every other Thursday due to our incredibly busy schedules. <laughs> we appreciate you guys being so patient with us. Our upcoming shows include November 7th with the North Berwick Witch Trials with Eliza Knight and November 21st you will be getting all of us for yet another happy hour where we are discussing more witch trials. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great night. <laughs> Bye. Bye.